Hi, you're listening to the Stefan Levera podcast. For episode 233, regular guest Vijay Boyaparty rejoins me on the show, and he is the author of The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. And so today we're talking about possible valuations for Bitcoin, as well as some common misunderstandings that people have, and just some common errors in thinking that people have around bull runs, which I'm sure you will enjoy. This show is brought to you by swanbitcoin.com, the best place to auto stack your Bitcoin in the US with incredibly easy setup and low fees. They've recently announced availability in New York, so they are now available in all 50 US states. So if you've got any new coin of friends, now you don't have to worry about whether they're in the right states for it. All US states are covered and Swan have some new features like XPUB support, which you can use with a hardware wallet, for example, and automatically withdraw to a new address each time. Swan's service is built around regular stacking. But if you want to wire money in for a special smash buy, support is coming for that soon also. They're Bitcoin only, and they're focused on teaching people to self-custody. So make sure you send your new coin of friends there. Go to swanbitcoin.com New York to sign up. Knox is a Bitcoin custodian dedicated to ensuring their insurance protection covers the full value of their customers' assets. For example, suppose a fiduciary wants to hold $250 million of Bitcoin with Knox. Knox will seek to obtain $250 million of insurance dedicated exclusively to that account and adjustable to volatility. No fractional coverage or narrow scope. Insurance for what it's worth. A tool to transfer risk. If you are a Bitcoin company, investment fund, trust, or family office, check out Knox for your insured custody. That's noxcustody.com. And speaking of bull runs, have you got your backups sorted out? Go to cyphersafe.io, producing the Cypher Wheel product. This is a metal backup seed product. So if you've got a Bitcoin hardware wallet or you've got a seed, uh, don't keep it just on that piece of paper. Make sure it's fireproof and waterproof and rustproof. With the Cypher Wheel, you slide in the tiles to keep a backup version of your seed. And in doing so, you can make sure that you or your loved ones have access to your Bitcoins if an accident occurs. So go and order yours at cyphersafe.io and use the code Levera for a discount. VJ, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Stefan. It's great to chat with you as always. And um, I hope I'm keeping my record as being the uh, the guest who's been on your show the most. That's a very important record to me because it's my the first podcast I did, and I still think it's the best Bitcoin podcast out there. Ah, well, thank you very much, VJ. And I think you are, although I haven't checked the numbers recently. I should run the numbers. Uh, <laughs> it's got to be. It'll be between you and Pierre, so uh, <laughs> quite fitting. <laughs> so yeah, so the market situation and Bitcoin has it's been continually changing over time, and now it's you know we're we're kind of getting to that point where. We have to start thinking about what kind of market do we think Bitcoin is competing for? And so you had a great thread around valuations. I'd love to get into some of that. So I think uh, it would be good if you could perhaps spell out what are some of the high level you know, uh, valuations that we could think of for Bitcoin? Yeah, absolutely. And and to give a little bit, bit of context, uh, context um, uh, my background is in Austrian economics. Uh, I'm a computer scientist by training, but I spent a lot of time studying Austrian economics. And when I first came across Bitcoin in 2011, the question that most interested me was, how does this have a price at all? That's this question that economists really should be studying is how how a price is set and how they formed. Um, More recently, I've become interested in valuation frameworks and not just how does Bitcoin have a price, but what price should you assign to it? 
And so I've been kind of thinking about and digging around uh, what valuation frameworks are there out there? What have people used? And and I came up with the four main ones that I've seen in my, um, you know, about nine years thinking about and observing the Bitcoin market. The first uh, framework is the one that pretty much everyone thinks of when they first come across Bitcoin, which is, this is just the tulip mania. This is another huge bubble. This thing doesn't have any intrinsic value. It's uh, some crazy token that's being created on the internet. How can it have value? Eventually, the bubble is going to burst. Uh, and if you if you were to believe this framework, you'd probably assign a, a long-term price target to Bitcoin of zero. And and this is the framework that you'll see still being used by people like Peter Schiff and Nouriel Roubini and, and Paul Krugman, and the you know the kind of people who can't get away from that first skepticism and open their mind and and sort of see that there's an underlying innovation here that's very important. So the second framework is that Bitcoin is a new monetary good uh, and it's clearly uh, solved some problem because there are certain people who value it, but the the set of people who do value it is limited and is limited to people who are either technologically savvy or who have an ideological affinity uh, to Bitcoin, so libertarians, for instance. And if you were to believe this valuation framework, uh, you'd probably assign a price target to Bitcoin of somewhere between 10,000 and 100,000 because there are still you know, a lot of people uh, who, who fit that category, libertarians and, and people with a technology background, and there's a lot of savings in Silicon Valley. So uh, that, that gets you, you know, a, a decent price level, but it's not sort of what I would call geopolitically significant. The third valuation framework that I found is that Bitcoin is essentially digital gold. It's a better version of gold. It has the, the same attributes that make gold good as a store of value. And in fact, it, it it's better than gold along these attributes, especially along the attribute of scarcity. It's a strictly finite supply and uh, transmissibility or transportability. It's it, it's like gold with teleportation built in. So I can transmit $100 million worth of Bitcoin uh, across the world almost instantly, whereas doing that with gold is much more difficult. Now, if you were to believe this framework, you'd think that it totally makes sense for for Bitcoin to have a market capitalization that's you know equivalent in the same ballpark as as gold. So you'd probably assign uh, a price level somewhere between three hundred thousand uh, US dollars, which is slightly below gold, to you know anywhere up to maybe a million dollars, which is higher than gold's market capitalization because you believe that it serves the same purpose as gold, but it does so in a better way. And the final framework that I've seen is that uh, Bitcoin becomes the world's uh, monetary base, the, the the global reserve asset that nation states and large finance financial institutions keep their savings in. And that is a model which sort of views Bitcoin as serving the same purpose that gold served in the 19th century when gold was the, the reserve currency of the world. And, and if you were to believe this uh, valuation model or framework, you would basically have to assign a price level to Bitcoin so that all the Bitcoins added up to the total global wealth. 
And, and that gets you to uh, a price level somewhere in the order of $10 million per Bitcoin or higher than that as the global economy grows. Yeah, so I think it's, uh, I, I want to go back to the tulip mania kind of idea. So I guess talking, uh, thinking of what someone like, you know, the typical skeptics nowadays, someone like Peter Schiff, who just can't get past, you know, the subjective theory of value. Um, I guess at the kind of, if we had to push it to the maximum level, what those kinds of people could say is, oh, well, see, you're just you're just living through this kind of bubble period and, you know, it might be that, you know, it just, the bubble hasn't popped yet. And I suppose our answer, well, at least the way I would think of that, is more like, well, hold on, were tulips able to be sent around the world? Were they strictly scarce? Did they have all these additional qualities? And I think the other point is just that really with these kind of past bubbles, tulips and South Sea, et cetera, um, it's not that they were like, it, it kind of died and then just re-rose again and again, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I completely agree. I think the second point is really important historically. There are no bubbles that I'm aware of that burst and then came back and then, you know, had had another popping and then came back. But each time they came back, they came back even bigger uh, I'm not aware of any such bubble and, and one that continued for an entire decade. It's just, uh, it would be historically unprecedented. There's clearly something valuable that's been create, created here and a clear uh, technological and monetary innovation. Uh, so it's sad that after 10 years, people are still using these analogies. I can understand maybe in the first two or three years, someone might see it and think that way, but after a decade, you you really are not thinking critically if you if you believe that valuation model. Yeah, and it's probably also fair to point out that just living in a fiat money world with you know a wash with credit expansion it might be a harder point to come back to to say, well, what if every asset is being pumped by this fiat? you know, central banking and uh, fractional reserve, uh, could it be that Bitcoin's value is being artificially pushed up, but also everything is being pushed up by that? Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I do think that uh, uh, all assets are being inflated by the fact that the total amount of fiat money out there has increased tremendously. But when you get into a situation where the, the inflation gets out of control, people will flock to the most liquid goods first the things that are the most tradable. So if you look at the, the Weimar hyperinflation, yeah, people fled uh, the, um, uh, the rent and mark to, to real assets, things like uh, uh, food and real estate. But the thing that they preferred the most was gold. And gold skyrocketed during the hyperinflation because it was the most liquid tradable good. And, and I think that's what you'll, you'll see if we get into a situation where the inflation gets out of control, that people will flock to the most liquid globally traded good. And, and Bitcoin is really fits the bill quite well. It's uh, deeply liquid. It's traded across the entire world. It can be transmitted across the entire world. Gold Gold's sort of similar as well, but it, it has a disadvantage that um, transmitting it is very difficult. And I'll give you an example of one case where this might be important. 
Imagine if you're the leader of a nation state that's not viewed very favorably by the United States and you've essentially been kicked out of the global monetary system because the US doesn't like you. So for, for instance, Venezuela, and you're running out of savings, your nation's running out of savings, and you want to repatriate your gold. You don't hold your own gold because you know it's hard to move gold around and you've trusted for a long time that the gold you had in the Bank of England is your gold and you can get it when you want. And you ask them, can I have, can we have our gold back? And they say, no, you can't have your gold back because we don't like you anymore. That uh, is a situation where th there's a huge advantage in having Bitcoin versus gold because the gold that you have is hard to move around. It's hard to pay other nations with because you have to physically transport it. So if you're a nation which has uh, become a pariah, there are huge advantages to holding Bitcoin versus gold. Yeah, and so moving up to the next valuation uh, category or bucket, if you will, the the new monetary tech for the tech savvy cypherpunks and libertarians. I'm curious what you think there, because some might, I guess, some people could say, "Oh, well, fine, Bitcoin might be this useful tool, but in reality, it's difficult to use." and to me, I think that ignores the reality of what this is, right? If it's a better money, well, then people will make better technology and better user experience for that. And really what's driving it is what was the better money, not what has the best UX, if you will. But how do you think about that? Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. The, the fundamental problem is making a better money. The user interface is something that takes time. And the, the same thing applied to the internet, for instance, as, as, as a comparison. Bitcoin is only a decade old. If if we were to look at what the internet looked like a decade after it had it's really begun being used in the way we think of the internet uh, today, that gets you to you know the early two thousands. And I I don't think many people back then really appreciated how important the internet was. It really took another decade, you know, two thousand ten and eleven and twelve, when people recognized that this is uh, going to be profoundly important to the way the the world economy works. And, and I think the same thing will be true for Bitcoin too. We don't fully understand how it's going to change the financial system, but it seems important. And it seems a little difficult to use and the internet was still difficult to use in the early 2000s and the internet penetration was still quite low. Uh, but in time, uh, the technologies to make it more approachable and easy to access were developed and they were developed because the underlying thing that had been built was very, very important. And the same thing is going to be true for Bitcoin. We still see a lot of innovation and companies coming into the space, trying to make it easier for people to use. Uh, and, I, and I think one of the areas of innovation that we're going to see a lot of work in over the next say three to five years is making it easy for people to self-custody and to feel confident holding their own coin and, and sort of reduce the mental burden of managing your own private keys. Yeah. And speaking of the demographics as well, I think even if you just looked at libertarians only, we haven't even hit saturation even in that demographic yet, right? There are a lot of libertarians who are not into Bitcoin. Maybe they got confused by all the Bcash stuff, or maybe they hold a very small amount of Bitcoin. They haven't actually really dived deep into this and actually taken a significant position into Bitcoin, wouldn't you say? 
Yeah, that's a great point. I, that's one I hadn't even thought about. The, the penetration even amongst the demographic who should be most sympathetic to Bitcoin is still fairly low. I, I mean, I, I don't have a specific number on the top of my head. I, I would imagine it wouldn't be more than, say, 30%. So there's still a lot of room to grow in even the most sympathetic demographic. And, and so that that gives you a sense of how much opportunity there is, how much upside there is amongst other demographics who don't really even think about these issues or why they're important. Right. And I think also from a cycles perspective, and I'm sure you have probably noticed this perhaps even in yourself and also in your observations of other people who are in the Bitcoin world, is that oftentimes it just takes time to build some conviction and it might need a full cycle, at least one, maybe even two cycles before someone is has built up uh, more of a conviction into holding a significant part of, of their uh, wealth into Bitcoin rather than, let's say, the dipping your toe in. And so it, it, I think it, it fundamentally is just going to take time for enough people to have gone through a cycle. Yeah, I think this is something that we've spoken about in one of your previous podcasts. I talk about I've talked about on Twitter the psychological process of becoming open to uh, or curious about Bitcoin and being willing to allocate some of your savings to it. And I talk about the idea of touch points, which is the number of times you've heard about Bitcoin or uh, someone you, you trust explaining it to you or having a small allocation to it and seeing that allocation increase in value to the point where you are curious and you dive down the rabbit hole. And for some people, uh, the number of touch points they need is much higher than other people. So, for instance, I I heard about Bitcoin twice uh, and that got me interested, partly because the people who told me about it, I really trusted. And partly because they were sort of explaining something in fertile ideological ground. I was, you know, a libertarian. I am a libertarian. And it was something that and I'm interested in economics and monetary theory. so. You know, when something like Bitcoin comes along, I'm pretty receptive to hearing about it. But for the average person, it may take 10 or 15 times before they think, hey, I, I keep hearing about this from my friends. Why don't I put a little bit of time in and figure out why this is important? Because I don't want to be the last person uh, on this bandwagon if Bitcoin becomes really big. Uh, or it, it could be that uh, a person has been gifted some Bitcoin a few years ago and it was worth $100 a few years ago and now it's worth $1,000. And that alone was enough uh, to pique their curiosity to the point where they're now going down the rabbit hole. And honestly, I can tell you from my own personal experience, this has happened among family members, people who I've gifted small amounts of Bitcoin to over the years. And they've sort of, their curiosity has growing with the price, which is you know, kind of natural as well. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'm curious as well. So I know you a little while ago, you went on Tom Woods' show to talk about Bitcoin to his audience. And it's just a funny thing because it seems like libertarians should be all about Bitcoin. And yet so many of them are not. Why, why do you think that is? Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, I, I'm going to say something controversial. I didn't expect to say something controversial uh, on your podcast, but I'm I'm going to assign the blame here to someone who I otherwise hold in high esteem, and that's Murray Rothbard. And I I think the problem st- stems uh, back to a misinterpretation of the Miesian regression theorem, 
which is a theorem of how does money uh, get its original value? And I think Rothbard was the first person to really take Mises's regression theorem and misinterpret it in a way that said money can only uh, evolve uh, as something that starts as a commodity with uh, real utility. Uh, so, you know, something that you can use to dig holes or um, something used for jewelry or something like that. And I, I think that was a big mistake. And if you look in the Austrian community, a lot of people clung to that idea for, for many years. And some of the prominent Austrians still haven't fully grappled with it and haven't fully figured out that that interpretation of the regression theorem is wrong. Uh, so that that's at least my thinking on what happened uh, in libertarian circles. There was that initial skepticism and dismissal and debate about, hey, can this thing be money? And I think a lot of people became hostile because of that debate, because debates like this can often get heated. And, and I think there was uh, some animosity that was created um, in, in the libertarian community and in Austrian circles. Uh, it's unfortunate. I, I think um, when, I, when I look at Rothbard's writing, I, I think he was a, a brilliant historian and a, a brilliant polemicist and a great uh, sort of um, motivator to bring people to libertarianism. But I, didn't, I don't think he was the same caliber of economist that Mises was. I think Mises was a giant and really uh, several of the things that he worked on were revolutionary. Uh, and I think this is just a case where something uh, that he believed was uh, sort of um, uh, misinterpreted and, and twisted a little bit. And I, I don't think Mises himself would have looked at Bitcoin and said, this can't possibly be money. This, this thing is like a, a Ponzi scheme or something like that. I think Mises would have been... Um, much more curious and would want to have understood what it was and how it got value in the first place. Mm, right. Uh, and uh, that, that may, that may well be true that uh, this confusion around the regression theorem was what led many Austro libertarians to not go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole as it were. Uh, but I suppose the other point there is that a lot of libertarians are not necessarily Austrian. So I guess it, for some of them, that wouldn't even matter. So what about the non-Austrian libertarians, even though you and I are in that camp? What about those other non-Austrian ones? Why aren't they into Bitcoin? That's a good question. I guess I can't, I don't have a general answer for you. I'd need to look at the specifics of particular people and and, and why they're dismissing it. Uh, it may be that they're just slow. Some people are slow on the uptake and recognizing that something is important. It's it's kind of like investors in a way. Some people are quick and they see that something is important and they move quickly uh, to take advantage of that. And some people are just slow. Uh, and I think probably the same thing is true in, in libertarian circles as well. Um, libertarians on average, um, my guess is they're um, more curious and more intelligent than the average person. But there's probably still a spectrum of levels of curiosity and and um openness and there's probably a whole bunch of people who are just naturally not that curious about new technologies yeah yeah and it could also just be that look it's technology it can be difficult for people if they're not a tech savvy person um but uh, i anticipate a lot of those people will come in over this next cycle or so and um with uh, the gold uh idea of bitcoin being something in that 
range of valuation, as you said, something like 300 to 1 million or 300,000 to 1 million, that is. Um, I wonder then uh, whether we, we start to get into that, we could potentially hit close into that range at the top of this cycle before crashing back down again. Uh, do you have any uh, thoughts on what uh, changes in the broader, let's say, investment world if Bitcoin were to get close to that kind of valuation? I think it's possible. I definitely think it's possible. Uh, and one of the things that I think is most fascinating, which mo- you know, fascinated me from the beginning uh, when I first came across Bitcoin, is this is the first time in history that we've seen a good being monetized. The process of gold becoming money took thousands of years. And so we get to observe this in real time and we get to learn how, how it happens and what it looks like. Uh, it's not a it's not a, a simple straight linear process. It's messy and it's uh, there are ups and downs. There are booms and busts. But one of the most fascinating things that I've observed is that it sort of happens in these cycles, uh, and these cycles are like a fractal pattern, uh, a fractal pattern of increasing magnitude. And and what I mean by that is, if you superimpose the uh, price chart of a Bitcoin uh, bull cycle uh, from 2011 to 2013, if you superimpose that on the bull cycle from 2016 to the end of 2017, it looks almost identical. And that's, uh, and even crazier to me is if you superimpose that pattern on the, the gold price chart from 1980 to 2010, it looks pretty much the same. And, and what I've speculated is this might be something that's inherent to the, the social dynamic of monetization. Um, and, and so if we do that again, if we take the, 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 the price chart of 2017 and superimpose it on the current price chart, rescaled for the current price level, that, that would get you to, at the end of this bull market, if it plays out in a similar way to the previous one, to a price level of 325000 per Bitcoin. Uh, somewhere in October 2021. Uh, currently, we, we're ahead of schedule. That is, the price now is higher than it should be if you were to follow exactly the 2017 bull market. So we're moving faster than we did in the last market, market cycle. I personally find that very, very strange. I would have thought that this bull market would take longer to play out just because of the scale of the market. Uh, so I, I'm surprised. I, I think this is pretty interesting. It's pre, it's it's cool. And it, it could partly be explained by the fact that, that the, um, the, the people coming into the market right now are very large institutional players moving very large amounts of money. And that's perhaps why things are moving more quickly than they did in the last cycle. Yeah, and also on this whole idea of additional adoption, I think from your bullish case for Bitcoin, I can't remember, or maybe it was one of your tweets, I think you were saying something like this cycle, this whole thing might take 50 years. Uh, but it seems nowadays, the way I'm looking at it now, it, it might actually be 10 or 20 years from now. Do you have any thoughts on uh, that kind of timeline idea of when you would anticipate we see this kind of final full global adoption? Yeah, so I've, for a long time, I've been kind of agnostic to uh, price, you know, price movements in the short to medium term. I, I haven't had strong predictions on on what would happen. I've been, I'm as bullish as anyone on Bitcoin in the longer term. 
uh, say, 50 years, I, I think there's almost an, an in inevitability to it becoming uh, a global reserve asset. Um, but, you know, recently there's been a lot of analysis uh, done by Plan B uh, about uh, um, Bitcoin being adopted in, in a very sort of predictable uh, way. And to be honest, I was kind of skeptical that something like that could even be possible because it almost violates what we as Austrians think of as uh, there being no statistical laws that you can sort of rely on, uh, that all all action can be changed at any time and market it's all it's all market dependent and dependent on the um, actions of individual in the particular time period. Uh, but but the the analysis that Plan B has done is very interesting and it, it's it's eerily accurate. It's almost scary to see how accurate it is and. If anything, I think Safer Dean may have said this, this might be the first sort of statistical economic law that anyone has ever created. Uh, and, and if it's the case that it, it follows this same pattern into this bull cycle, I think, I think Plan B might be up for a Nobel Prize in economics. Back to the show in a moment after this message for the sponsors of the show. Unchained Capital is building Bitcoin-native financial services on a foundation of multi-signature. They've got multi-sig vaults and they're designed for ultra-secure long-term storage with no setup or storage fees if you build them on your own. But if you want additional help, if you want white-glove treatment, their team will teach you about multi-signature. They'll ship you two hardware wallets, answer your questions, and deposit $1,000 of Bitcoin in your vault called the Concierge Service. And if you use my code LAVERA, you'll get a discount on that also. You can buy Bitcoin through their OTC desk for purchases $50,000 or higher straight into your new vault. And that's an option for self-directed Bitcoin retirement accounts or if you're a company looking to move Bitcoin into treasury. They've got advanced business accounts, OTC desk and concierge service that can help you move your corporate treasury to Bitcoin where your team controls the private keys. Check them out at unchained-capital.com. And finally, Lend at HodlHodl is a global non-custodial Bitcoin-backed lending platform that allows you to lend and borrow anonymously on your own terms. HodlHodl offers a peer-to-peer -peer lending solution, ensuring a secure and transparent collateral storage system by providing a unique multi-signature escrow for each deal. This is a way to grow your savings and earn attractive returns on your investment. So if you have any stablecoins lying around, create your offers and earn some interest by lending on Lend at HodlHodl. Or if you are a Bitcoiner and you need some liquidity, you can borrow stablecoins and keep on hodling. With HodlHodl's Lend platform, you set your own terms and put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and interest rates. Go and check it out at lend.hodlhodl.com. Right, and uh, as you say, generally speaking, in Australian economics, it's not that there's like some statistical laws that we can divine through statistical analysis. Uh, but I suppose the maybe a safetyian counter to that point would be something like now that we have this monetary set point of 21 million, maybe that really does change some things about you know the way uh, economics works because now the total supply is known, or at least the eventual total supply is known. Yeah, I mean, perhaps the fact that we that people's expectations about that supply are becoming are sort of becoming more and more confident over time is is one way to explain um, this this growing belief that stock to flow is a, a valid model, and there may be a feedback loop here as as um, 
more and more people believe that the model is actually correct, uh, it follows the model even more closely. So that, that would be an interesting thing. We're, we're, we're learning, and I think it's really good for us as Austrians to keep an open mind and be observant and watch the market and see how things play out. Um, I, I probably am not quite as confident as Plan B in the model. Uh, I'm, I'm open to it being correct, and I think it would be absolutely incredible if it was correct. My bullishness is more for the longer term, and I personally always uh, urge caution for anyone getting into Bitcoin to think about this as an opportunity that they should uh, have like a, a, a decade horizon on. Buy some, buy some so that you know you don't feel uncomfortable with the amount you own and just forget about it and come back in a decade and see where you're at. Uh, I, I think it's a little bit dangerous to think that you can buy something and next year it's going to be up 10x. If it is up 10x, that's fantastic. That's great for you and uh, it's great for the whole community. But uh, don't, don't come into the space predicated on an assumption that that's true. Be cautious, be patient, uh, and read as much and learn as much as possible to increase your conviction so that you feel comfortable owning Bitcoin for a long period of time. Right. And with this cycle, I think the narrative has shifted as well. That, Or at least it's more like people have settled down onto more like a store of value long-term narrative where perhaps historically it was a bit more confusing uh, and other there were other ideas around what possible narratives there were like is this a crypto world or is this some other thing going on uh, where now i think there's at least a stronger contingent and a stronger messaging around what bitcoin is yeah i think this is the first bull cycle when we have the correct narrative there have been like you say a whole bunch of narratives floating around there was one for a while though it was everyone was all about Blockchain is important, but Bitcoin is not. And um, within the Bitcoin community, I think the big important uh, debate was what is Bitcoin? Is it a is it a payment technology? Is it a payment rail, uh, or is it a savings technology? Is it something more akin to digital gold? And and that debate really came to a head in 2017 with the big split of the network. And uh, I think. The important thing is that that split really resolved one of the biggest risks for Bitcoin, which is what what is it? We we we're not really sure what it is, and and there was a big risk at the time, uh, a perceived risk amongst investors that uh, the whole thing could fall apart because the community couldn't get together. What happened, in fact, is when the network split, the market overwhelmingly voted for uh, Bitcoin as digital gold as a, as a savings technology, as a, as a reserve asset. And uh, the fact that that was resolved and now we've sort of, sort of gotten past the whole idea that blockchains are important and Bitcoin is not. This is the first bull cycle when people, I think, now generally view Bitcoin as a fantastic store of value and they also recognize it is the only blockchain of any significance or any value. Uh, and that's incredibly important. I think having that narrative in place is going to be enough to get us from where we are now to Bitcoin uh, attaining and eventually eclipsing gold in market value. To, to get it beyond that, to get it from gold to uh, being the world reserve asset, the, the narrative might need to expand or 
be um, improved in so some ways to to bring along skeptical nation states or central banks. Uh, but but having the narrative we have now is enough to get us to being digital gold, in my opinion. Yeah, and also this is a point I have mentioned as well around what we might call order of operations, right? So it seems that there's a lot of, if we look out into the more shitcoin and crypto world, uh, they are often talking about DeFi and as though, you know, you need to have all these kind of fancy, complicated financial instruments and, you know, you can't do that on Bitcoin, therefore that's why we need a shitcoin for that. And I mean, to me, it, the way I've always thought about that is more like, well, we need to get the money right first and Bitcoin has a lot more growing to do before those things are, you know, 100% necessary. Um, so you can experiment with them. And to some extent, you know, th there is some level of Bitcoin DeFi nowadays with things like, you know, HODL HODL Lend, sponsor, sponsor of my show, uh, but also uh, other things like, you know, Lightning Pool and this idea of, you know, uh, getting return for being a routing node and things like that. What's your thoughts on, uh, you know, so-called DeFi and its you know potential importance to Bitcoin and when that would even become a, a relevant factor. Yeah, I like the way you frame that. I, I think you're right. You you need to get the foundation set before you start building the rest of the house. And I feel like some of these other projects uh, they're really experimental. I don't I don't take them seriously at all. Um, they're they're sort of working on the roof before they have any kind of foundation. Um, I, I am. I'm personally very skeptical of the whole DeFi movement or like building this kind of stuff on Ethereum because one thing I think is underappreciated is that when whenever you have any contract which um, makes reference to something in the physical world or some some entity that can be coerced by the state, then having it in a decentral decentralized system doesn't really help you much. And, and I'll give you an example. So in, in 2017, there was this huge ICO boom when people thought, hey, this is a really great way to build these contracts which are on Ethereum and we can raise money and we can do it completely outside of the purview of any regulation. And I think that was people were quickly disabused of the idea that that was possible because, you know, companies that are running and raising capital and have an office can still be subpoenaed by the SEC and they they can be physically uh, coerced. Um, and if you have a business which is using these contracts or you have some physical object which uses a contract, those things exist in the physical world and can be coerced. So I think the, uh, the use of decentralization in those, those situations is almost like decentralization theater. It's not it's not useful. It doesn't help. It, there's no advantage of doing those same things with, uh, you know, Amazon Web Services and using a Postgres da database. Uh, I, I don't see the advantage there. In fact, it's much less efficient to do it on something like Ethereum. It's only in the in the world of money, which is sort of ethereal and um, doesn't have phys doesn't need to have physical form and and can be transmitted and transported around the world. That I think it makes sense to to use a, a blockchain. I see, and so I guess one interesting counter example there might be something like Bitcoin DLCs, right? Uh, but I suppose 
if I under, if I interpreted your view right there, you I guess you're kind of viewing that like that's a bit more of a sideshow compared to the you know the main stage, which is Bitcoin as money. Yeah, I think so, and I I think there are you know businesses that are building on Bitcoin and building um, sort of financial products on Bitcoin, like lending and derivatives and things like that. Uh, I have not yet seen an example where that's being done in a truly decentralized way on top of Bitcoin. So something like BlockFi, uh, that's a company that's building these uh, products, uh, lending products on Bitcoin. Those products, uh, I think, are t- totally fine. And uh, but but I think also BlockFi is a company that can be coerced in, in the future if the if the government says we don't want these products to exist, they can just go shut down BlockFi. Um, it will be interesting to see if someone could build uh, a, a tr- truly decentralized lending market on top of Bitcoin and have uh, you know market interest rates being set uh, in a decentralized way. Uh, if that's possible, that's fantastic. I just I don't believe I've seen that yet. Right. Typically, it's needed some kind of entity to help facilitate, um, and maybe that is good enough in terms of people having service and having someone they can talk to and figure out how to use it with. Um, so, yeah, I think. Yeah, that's it. I just want to sort of cover what you said just now uh, a little bit more. There's an example of something called wrapped Bitcoin, where you can wrap a Bitcoin and trade it uh, on some Ethereum markets. Um, But the wrapping process actually requires you to set up an account with, um, uh, what's the business, BitGo. Uh, So already the whole point of having a decentralized system of trading wrapped Bitcoin, as it's called on Ethereum, is kind of... A farce because you're you're dealing with a centralized authority already, and if if Bit, Bitgo gets raided, then that is gone. Your the, the the wrapped Bitcoin that you're trading on Ethereum is gone. So it, it's kind of theater to do that and to do it on Ethereum when you could do the same thing just by creating you know a web app uh, and and just using a database to tra- uh, trade bitcoins back and forth just like you could trade bitcoins back and forth with someone on coinbase yeah and uh, i'm i'm also sort of related but i'm also curious to get your perspectives on uh, stablecoins here so obviously i you know i don't view stablecoins as any kind of monetary competitor with bitcoin but uh, i i guess I've seen different perspectives in the community. Some are bearish, some are bullish. Some view stablecoins more like they might be the the grease that enables people to kind of get in and out of different exchanges or the, a stepping stone for people who want to try and start with those before then getting into Bitcoin. Do you fundamentally view stablecoins in a similar way or are you kind of bullish or bearish on them? I think they sort of... Uh they aid the on-ramps, they aid people in being able to get fiat money into Bitcoin, especially in places where it's not easy to get, uh, uh, you know, if there's an exchange which only takes dollars, it might be easy to use Tether in a place where dollars are not available in your country. Uh, in general, though, I, I just sort of see them as money substitutes for fiat currency. I don't think they're particularly interesting Uh it, it's just that you can trade them digitally. They're still completely centralized, which is that they're missing the the uh, the property that makes Bitcoin interesting and, and makes it 
useful as a, a, an uncensorable digital store of value is that uh, it, they're not, it, it's not centralized. There's no central party that can roll back your uh, savings in Bitcoin if they wanted to. With something like Teva, I don't believe that at all. I, I don't, it, it's entirely possible that the, the company that runs Tether could be shut down and all your savings are taken away. So I'm only, I'm only positive on them in the sense that they make it easier for some people to get their fiat savings into Bitcoin. Right. And uh, yeah, from yeah, from what I know, uh, it seems like exchanges typically like having it just as a way to help people in and out as well. And there are some people who just view it like, I just want to be temporarily in that stable coin and so on. Um, and so they're trying to minimize the amount of time that they're in it. But I suppose there might be others who actually try to hold some of their value in Tether because they would rather not hold it in their local fiat, that kind of thing. But that's, I guess that's kind of a different, yeah. Yeah, I think one other comment. I think there's people. There are people who um, uh, do arbitrage and try to um, uh, make profits from the spread between various exchanges. And it's easier for them to transmit uh, dollar value, tradable dollar value, between exchanges using something like Tether than going through the the banking system because the the banking system is so old and antiquated and terrible that everything takes so long. And if you're trying to trying to arbitrage, say, a ten dollar spread between Coinbase and Binance, and you're trying to move dollars between them, it's much easier to use something like Tether than it is to uh, do it through the banking system. Yeah, for sure. Um, also, I guess a few might be interesting to talk about a few insights in terms of how these bull cycles go. Just for maybe some listeners are a little newer, they aren't as familiar, or maybe they weren't paying as much attention during the 2016 and 17 uh, runs. Uh, but uh, I think it's interesting to point out and note that there will just be pullbacks along the way, and uh, people uh, might get get uh, they might end up losing a lot of money if they're trying to call tops and bottoms and trying to trade in and out. Yeah, if you um if you look at previous bull market cycles, nothing happens. The process of monetization we've already learned does not happen in a straight line. It happens in in sort of it's a very bumpy ride. And uh if you look at previous uh the previous bull market cycle there were several tops called through the cycle. I mean, there were people calling the top at 3,000, 5,000, 9,000, 15,000, uh, and every one of those was wrong. Um, so so if, if you want to sort of see the big gains uh, over the long term, you're not going to be trying to trade these things because to trade these tops because it's very easy to get tricked and see something uh, see a price movement to let's say in this cycle it gets to seventy five thousand and then it drops down thirty or forty percent. It drops down to forty thousand. A lot of people are going to panic and sell out because they'll think this is the end. Bitcoin is going to drop all the way back down to three thousand or something like that. Um, uh, but uh, you should, in, in any bull cycle, you should expect that there are going to be at least three or four drops, which are at least thirty percent. And if you haven't experienced it before, a 30% drop is very, very painful. Uh, and the only way you're going to s- survive this is if you have conviction, you, you go down the rabbit hole and understand why Bitcoin is long-term really valuable. And you should 
to go through and listen to every one of Stefan's podcasts <laughs> to get conviction. Uh, and and maybe put your Bitcoin somewhere where it's hard to get it out, to, so it's hard to to trade it. So put it in cold storage, put it in a, a lockbox somewhere, and just forget about it and don't even look at the price. That's that's what I tell people: buy some amount of Bitcoin that you feel comfortable about, uh, and just hold it for five to ten years and and don't even look at the price until then. Right, and I think it's a common tendency for not for everyone, but for some people to feel like they can try to pick the tops and the bottoms or that, okay, if there's a drop, it might only be 20% drops and then they might lever into a certain position and then actually get wrecked because it dropped more than they thought it would. And, you know, then there's tears at the end, whereas it's mu- it's so much more simple to just simply, you know, take a position uh, and, you know, if you're able to and you've got income and you're happy, you know, and then keep you know, dollar cost averaging or stacking sats or auto stacking, whatever you want to call it, um, just play it like that. Uh, and that's a simple way that, uh, you know, people who've done that strategy have done well. Yeah, another mis- a common mistake in bull markets is I don't want to buy now because it's already gone up so much. And it's funny, I, a friend reminded me just yesterday of an email uh, exchange we had going back to, I think it was 2012. And he said, ah, I don't, I just, I really don't want to buy Bitcoin here. It's $13. It's gone up so much in the last few days. I just feel really uncomfortable. And he reminded me of that and how, how painful it was to look at that and, and think, whoa, I, I, I was like, um, I was getting worked up over a few dollars. I didn't see the big picture here. And I think Bitcoin is still an asymmetric bet. I still think it has massive upside from here uh so the mistake people make is i don't want to buy it now because it's gone up a lot so i'm going to wait for a pullback and buy it on the pullback but let's say the price is fifteen thousand. you wait for a pullback it could get up to twenty five thousand and then pull back to twenty thousand and then you've you haven't bought in the, the better way to think about it is not i'm trying to find the exact right price the, the right way to think about it is what fraction of my portfolio am I comfortable owning in Bitcoin and just buy that fraction and just sit on it for as long as you can. Yeah. And obviously, as this cycle plays out, I'm sure we will see the same characters, right? Peter Schiff, Noriel, Krugman, whoever else, they'll come out every time there's a drop. And uh, one thing that I've noticed really is that they're very short-term focused, right? They look at this short-term drop of, you know, 20% or 30%, and then they won't look back at the actual long term where we've seen, you know, multiple multiples. Literally, Bitcoin has gone to multiples of what you what it used to be. And it's almost like there's this selection bias of people who are able to be long-term thinkers versus the people who only see things in the short term. Yeah, I joked about this on Twitter when Bitcoin recently dropped. I think it was from like eighteen thousand five hundred to seventeen thousand. I was like, see, Peter Schiff is right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, uh, they, they've totally missed the forest for the trees. They haven't seen the big picture. Uh, and I think just a little more cynically, I, I think in the case of Peter Schiff and Noriel Rubini, I, I think this is a motivated dishonesty. I think they see that they get a lot of engagement from this and it's good for their brand. And, and so some of Peter Schiff's tweets are so inherently dishonest that I, I, I'm still find it hard to figure out if he's either a, 
dishonest person or he's just stupid. And I keep sort of going back and forth between those two. Uh, but it, it may be that he's actually really smart. He's figured out that he, he mentioned on Twitter that he, his um, number of followers has gone from like 200 to 300,000 uh, just by tweeting about Bitcoin. That's all he tweets about, even though he's a uh, sort of a used gold salesman. Um, he's found out that he can get a lot of engagement by uh, talking about Twitter because the Bitcoin community is a very active, uh, passionate community. And you tweet anything about Bitcoin, you're going to get a lot of people uh, engaging with you. And I think this is going to be uh, the first cycle when you see a lot of celebrities getting involved in Bitcoin too. So th this this bull run is going to have a lot of attention. It's going to be it's going to be crazier than anything you've ever seen. It's going to be like a circus. Uh, so prepare your body for 2021. It's going to be a very wild ride. <laughs> and I remember even in the 2017 cycle, there were, you know, it was like Katy Perry is coming out with her own coin or something. I can't remember exactly, right? They were, they were all coming out with their own coin. That was the thing, right? Uh, whereas maybe this time it'll be more like, you know, Bitcoin bling or I don't know, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, I, I'd almost forgotten about that. You're absolutely correct. It, it sort of illustrates how we've finally um, honed down to the correct narrative. Back then, it was like all about blockchain, so everyone had their own blockchain, and that was cool. But I mean, of course, that idea is completely absurd. You don't want to have one money for buying bread and another money for paying gas. You want one money, just a single good uh, hard money, and that's Bitcoin. So. Uh, this cycle is going to be completely Bitcoin dominated and and everyone, every celebrity and their dog is going to want to talk about Bitcoin. So it's going to be very, very exciting and interesting and um, everyone's going to be talking about it, good or bad. Uh, and people who have been talking about Bitcoin like yourself for a long time are going to get a lot of inbound media attention. Yeah, though we will see. I mean, uh, I guess if everyone wants their own blockchain and their own uh, their own coin, uh, there might be, you know, it may be it may be that uh, you know Bitcoin obviously will grow a lot, and we will see less as a percentage who get fooled by shitcoins. But it might actually still be bigger in absolute terms, right? Just because of the numbers involved here. So there may still be a lot of people who get confused and go, you know, buy shitcoins and etc. Yeah, you, you're right. That's that's a, a good point. Um, in in relative terms, I think it'll get much smaller. But um, as Bitcoin becomes massive, there will still be some sort of fraction of people who own Bitcoin who are degenerate gamblers and who will uh, want to you know try their luck in in some of the altcoins. And because the altcoins are so small and so illiquid any small fraction of Bitcoin moving into them can massively spike their price. So move them from like a quarter of a penny to like nine or 10 pennies. Uh, so, and that can get certain people excited, like, wow, I can make 50 X on this altcoin, but really only a few people can make that because it's so illiquid. Anyone who was coming in with, you know, a large amount of capital would completely lose all of their capital doing that. Uh, but uh, there, there will be some fraction of people who sort of fall for this. And it's unfortunate because, you know, we've gone through a couple of these cycles where we try and we care about people and their savings and we don't want them to be hurt. And as much as you warn people beforehand, there will still be some fraction who fall for this nonsense. 
Yeah, it's unfortunate to see, but uh, I guess, uh, you know, just got to try to keep putting out good material and hope that uh, people uh, catch on to it. Um, Also, I was interested to get your thoughts around uh, some of the, let's call it platform risks or technological risks around things like Ethereum, because I think it's important to just kind of spell out for people what's the difference between, you know, Bitcoin that's built and engineered to last for the long term versus, you know, uh, the way people are building on things like Ethereum. What are some of the practices that you're seeing over there? Well, Bitcoin, uh, sorry, Ethereum is exciting to a certain mindset, the engineering mindset, people who like writing code and scripting and things like that, sort of a Silicon Valley mindset and engineering mindset, which is obsessed with direct utility. And so they see Ethereum and they think, I can build all these things on top of it, therefore it must be useful. It's not thinking about it from a monetary perspective and uh, the value comes from uh stability and credibility of monetary policy. And in that regard, I think there is no altcoin that comes anywhere close to Bitcoin, and that that includes Ethereum. There is no credibility to the, the monetary policy of Ethereum. And you can see that because in the early days, uh, they had a contract on Ethereum, which was kind of like a, um, they, they sort of touted it as a decentralized uh, venture capital fund. And then someone figured out a, a hole in the contract where they could steal money from this fund. And, and what they did was they, they essentially rolled it back. They, they forked the Ethereum blockchain so that that, uh, that bug was kind of, and the theft of the funds was wiped out. And that really tells you that there's no credibility to uh, Ethereum's um, protocol being immutable. They can change it at any time. And, uh, and part of the problem there is that you you, st- you have a founder, you have one person who has enormous influence over the development of Ethereum, which is Vitalik Buterin. And that's totally fine as a software project, but it's not fine as a monetary good. It's not something that you can trust. Uh, so in, in regards to the credibility of monetary policy, I think there's only one coin that's that has that credibility, and that's Bitcoin. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's why, uh, you know, I stay Bitcoin only and I, uh, you know, I encourage listeners to, you know, just stay Bitcoin only and uh, don't get uh, tricked um, with uh, some of these uh, sort of charlatan-esque uh, scam projects going on. Um, so uh, I guess probably a good spot to wrap up here, VJ. Uh, do you have any uh, closing thoughts for the listeners? I think it's, uh, we, we still haven't gotten into the 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 frenzy phase of the bull market um, when it's going to become really hard to concentrate and pay attention. Anyone who's been interested in Bitcoin for a while will know the feeling that when you're going through a bull market, it's it's hard to concentrate on work. It's hard to concentrate on anything. I think this is the best time to, if you're building things, sort of batten down the hatches and build as fast as you can. If you're interested in investing, then spend as much time as you can digging into the important materials and and how to self custody um, and things that'll help you with your conviction during a bull market. One of the things I like to say is that people's conviction is tested much more in a bull market than in a bear market because you see this you know some fraction of your savings growing enormously and it's really hard to hold on to it unless you have that long term conviction. So before we get into the crazy phase, which I think is probably going to happen in the next few months, 
uh, now is the time to you know, spend time learning or building or um, doing the things that are important before you know, you'll be completely distracted. All of us will be completely distracted uh, once we get to the parabolic phase of the bull market. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think uh, it's uh, bringing back memories there. Listeners, make sure you follow VJ, real underscore VJ on Twitter. And if you haven't already, go and read his article, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. Thanks, VJ. Thanks, Stefan. I hope you enjoyed the show. And just as we're going into this big run, I'd really appreciate any reviews you can leave me on the podcatching or podcast platform that you're listening on. Thanks very much for that. Make sure you subscribe because I've got a very big episode coming very soon. You can get the show notes at stefanlevera.com. Thanks, and I'll see you in the Citadels.